Um, so I would like to welcome Jackie Skoll to Behind the Pros. Thank you for being here today, Jackie. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Keisha. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Just going to read a little bit of your bio here. Award-winning journalist. You're an adjunct professor of communications. Uh, you started your journalism career at CNN, uh, first as a news writer, then as a producer um, in the network documentary unit. You've produced programs for Animal Planet and HGTV. Um, you've taught at LaSalle University, Ryder University, Raritan Valley Community College, and now you're living in New Jersey with your husband, your three daughters, um, two human, one canine, um, and Galen is the canine daughter who inspired the journey, Dogland, a journey to the heart of America's dog problem, your new book that we're going to talk to you about today. So, again, um, thank you. I for being here. I saw your book in Publishers Weekly way back in August, and I emailed you, um, and so I was glad when you agreed to, to be on the show. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I have a lot of questions for you. I read the book. I took some notes, um, but I would like to start with your writing process. Um, in general, um, do you have a set schedule where you like write every day or do you just write a few days a week? What's that like for you? I'm still in the process of figuring that out. I think for me, this whole writing process has been very interesting because I, when I started working on the book, I didn't come at it from the perspective of a writer, which may sound kind of odd because it's a book. I came to it from the perspective of a journalist who had questions that I wanted answered, and then I was going to take that and tell a story. And because my background has always been broadcast journalism, I was thinking this was going to be a different way to tell the story, but I really didn't think of myself as a writer per se. Then when I got into actually the writing of the book after I'd done the research, yes, I got up in the morning before my kids, got up and I wrote and the, I'm a, a more of a morning person than a night person. So those early hours were when I got the most done. And then I would try to stick in time when I wasn't chauffeuring them to after school activities or I wasn't teaching. Now hmm. I kind of am trying to be more writer and journalist. So I am trying to write every day in some form or another, whether it's a writing prompt, whether it's just writing my to-do list, <laughs> um, I'm trying to do a little bit of writing every day. Mm -hmm. So for those who haven't read the book, tell us when you got the idea for the book. What year was that? I think that was back 2012, 2011 or so. Um, we had my, my dog, Griffin, had died suddenly, and we adopted Galen. Um, she was about eight weeks old when we did that. And in the months that followed, asking myself a lot of questions about many of her quirky behaviors. And I recall that when I had adopted Griffin, I always wondered about some of his behaviors. Uh, but I never thought at that time to 
do any research into where he had come from. He too was a rescue. Um, but just sort of as luck would have it, the timing for me was right to actually ask those questions and then go out and answer them. And as I was trying to find out, trace her origins, I knew she was from the South. I knew she was from a shelter in North Carolina. As I began asking questions and getting answers, I began to think, you know what? There's a story here. It's bigger than just her story. It's the story of shelter dogs in America. And that's kind of how it all began. Mm -hmm. So at that point, did you write a proposal to sell the book? Or did you decide to write the book first? So it's kind of funny because I was completely naive is a nice way to put it, ignorant of book publishing. Like I said, I come out of broadcast. Um, I worked at CNN, then I freelanced as a broadcast producer. So I was really just kind of naive. I thought, you know what, I have a good story here and I'm going to tell it. And so I just started working towards it. I did get to the point where I had all this stuff and I thought, okay, I don't know what in the world I'm doing or where to go with it. So I signed up for a Media Bistro online course, um, nonfiction book publishing, and got lucky once again that I had an extraordinary teacher. Um, here's a shout out to Ashley Shelby, who was not only a great teacher during the course of the program, after it ended, um, we stayed in touch and she was my soundboard and she helped me navigate the publishing process because she knew it and I didn't. So what did that look like for you at that time? All right, so she, um, through the course, I learned what a nonfiction book proposal looked like. Um, and I put one of those together. And also in the course of the class, um, we had to start writing some of our chapters, did all that. I put the proposal together and sent it out to a whole bunch of agents and really didn't get any bites. One told me that she liked the concept, she liked the writing, and if I was Wayne Passell, who is the president of the Humane Society of the United States, she would take it. But because hmm. I was a little old me, and I didn't have that platform that he had, uh, she's gonna have to pass because she didn't think that she could sell it to one of the big publishing houses. At that time, I was reading Writer's Digest, and I stumbled upon an article that said, hey, if you're having trouble with the uh, getting an agent, don't forget to look at the small presses. So I went online, and I looked up small publishing houses that accept nonfiction. And uh, one of those that I found was Ashland Creek Press, a boutique publisher. They focus on environmental and animal literature. And I thought, you know what, they sound like they might, <laughs> they might be the kind of place that would embrace my book. And I sent my proposal to them and 
Midge Raymond, who is one of the co-founders, got in touch with me and said, you know what, this sounds great, but we are a small press, and as such, we don't take proposals, but we'd love to see the full manuscript when you finish it. Huh. So I said, all right. And those were my marching orders. And I continued to send out to agents, but I really went gung-ho in trying to complete the manuscript. And when I did, I sent it back to them. And they did embrace it. And the rest is history. So I'm, again, I guess you make your own luck, but I took that Media Beast record instructor who guided me even afterwards. I came upon that Writer's Digest story that told me to look at small publishing houses, and I did that, and um, that's how it came to be. So at the time when Ashlyn told you, hey, sent us a full-length manuscript about how much had you completed um, in the book as far as, like, what were solid chapters, and then when... When was that, when they told you that? I'm trying to think. I probably had I probably had a half to three-quarters of the book done. Um, so there were several months that went in between the comment that they were interested in the proposal and when I actually sent them. For some reason, and I'm not even—I'm not sure this is right, but for some reason, I have in my head February or March. They said we're interested, and I think I said I can have it to you by July, maybe. Hmm. So, in terms of uh, completing the manuscript, now you've mentioned that you—you you know, previously you were doing broadcast, you broadcast journalism, but you are also a news writer, um, and you did take that class. Um, did you? How did you manage your own deadlines then? You know, you told them July, and you said that you'd been getting up in the morning. Did you have, like, a certain amount of chapters that you would write every week? Or um, what, did you just free write, like, the whole thing? Because what happened? Okay, did you just, like, free write it because you had, like, a lot of research into research? Um, how did you go about managing that? Well, the the course I took, with Media Bistro really helped me uh, figure out what the structure was going to be. Um, afterwards, I did change it a little bit because, you know, obviously an outline, uh, outlines get changed as you tell a story. So it did get changed, but it really helped me focus on what the structure was going to be. And I wrote, I wrote it in order. I <laughs> wrote, chapter one, then chapter two, then chapter three, uh, down the line. Um, huh. And I, I think that may be different but than, than what other writers do. But again, this was very new to me. I'm a very linear person. So I don't know that I could have really done it any other way. Now, where and when did the research come in? Because you have... So much research. It seems you traveled across um, the country. It seems it feels like in the book, you know, to exit or to Tennessee, to North Carolina, to Florida, um, talking to rescue organizations and visiting shelters and interviewing people. Where did that fit in in terms of the writing of the book? 
I didn't write a thing until I did all my research. Um, mm-hmm. The the trips were essential. The that's what I love. I love the reporting. I love the meeting people. I love the being on the ground. I love the learning from people who who make saving lives, <laughs> uh, finding homes for these dogs and cats. So the book, you know, focuses on dogs, but um, when you're talking about shelters and rescues, you know, the cats are there too. I just, that's where my high is, is, is finding these incredible people. So I loved doing that. And I would find time when I wasn't teaching, um, when my mom could come over and help my husband with the kids because he works. And I would go south. So I did all of my research because I had to know that I had a story. Um, so I had to do all of the research. As I was writing, I had, you know, a trip here or there, but for the most part, that was all, that was all first. I had some ideas about what the answers to some of my questions would be, but I couldn't have known until I traveled and I couldn't have written until I had that information. Mm-hmm. So did you, had you started your research before you took the Media Bistro class? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. The reason I took the Media Bistro class was because I realized that I had all this research and I knew I had nothing about book publishing, so I didn't know what to do with it. Mm. Um, and so, because when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe the publisher paid for her to go all these places, but did you self-fund your research then? (laughs) Yes, no, no. Um, All self-funded. All self-funded. I was fortunate in that having worked at CNN, um, I had a good, good friend um, who lived in Atlanta, and I stayed with her a bunch of times. I had a girlfriend who I went to college with who was down in Atlanta. I stayed with her. So my, my trip to Georgia never cost as much as some of the other ones. But, you know, at the time, I said that timing is everything. And at the time, I was having what I like to call a little mid-career crisis. And I was debating whether to go get a Ph.D. Um, so that hmm. I could take my teaching from being an adjunct to, um, you know, just searching for a, a full-time tenured position. Mm-hmm. Well, I had this inkling and this idea for the book. And, you know, in a heart-to-heart with myself and with my husband, we just kind of decided that it would cost a whole lot more to go get the PhD. And we're very mm-hmm. happy with our life here. So even if I got it, I would be very limited in those, universities that I could even apply to because we were not going to pick up and move for my job. Um, Mm -hmm. So it kind of was like, okay, so I could spend a a fraction of that money um, and see if this book would turn out. So we kind of, so from the start, it was like, I'm going to self-fund this, but I'm going to spend less than I would to go get my PhD and it's for a really good cause, which also sort of made us say, um, if this comes to fruition, we will also donate 
the profits to animal welfare. So that's kind of what happened. So it was, I mean, hey, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I could do it. Uh, I'll definitely mm-hmm. say that. I'm very fortunate that we were able to put the money aside for me to go do these trips. And, um, and now that I'm donating a lot of the proceeds. So you sent the book to, or you told them you would send it back in July. Did you meet that July deadline? Oh, yes. And um, you say, oh, yes, like it sounds, you are like a deadline oriented person. <laughs> I am a deadline. If I have a deadline, I am much better with deadlines. Yes. I am a, I'm a, yeah. a better worker when I have a deadline ahead of me. Well, you know, I have a side question to ask you on that because the deadline that you told them, you know, was sort of self imposed. Um, how do you make yourself deal with self-imposed deadlines? So, for example, if I tell myself, oh, by next Friday I'm going to have an essay draft written and no one knows that it's coming, I'm like, eh, who's going to punish me? How do you um Oh, no, I'm exactly the same as you. Yes, if I say to myself I'm going to have an essay written by next Friday and no one knows but me, yeah, chances are good that essay is not being written. But mm-hmm. I had them. <laughs> I had a public publishing house that was interested <laughs> in my work. So <laughs> that mm. that work was done. That was the okay. other good thing about working with um, Ashley, because I would say to her, I will have a chapter for you by X date. By doing that, I wasn't going to not meet the deadline. If I were mm. my only deadline, yes, I would. I would not necessarily meet it. But if there's somebody waiting on me, I'm going to meet that deadline. And do you think that somebody has to be someone who is removed from you in a personal capacity? Like if you had said to your husband, um, Kevin, right? Oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a chapter for you. you. Do you feel that, you know, you're more compelled to meet the deadline since it was like a teacher that you were giving it to? Definitely. Or is it just anyone publicly? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if, if I told Kevin I'd have a chapter for him, I would have a much easier time saying, sorry, <laughs> it's not there. But um, having somebody outside of me and having somebody who was going to help me. I mean, Ashley's critiques of my chapters were insightful and helpful. So I was not going to not get something to her on time. You know, um, Ashley Creek Press was the one publisher that came back to me and said, hey, we're interested. I was not going to miss that deadline. Mm-hmm. And how long after you sent them the manuscript did they reply? And what was that like getting that reply from them? It's all kind of a blur. <laughs> I can't remember how long it took. Um before they got back to me. But, I mean, I was ready to just throw myself at their feet and say, anything you want, any changes you want, anything, just please, please, please. So it was probably a couple of months because they obviously had to have time to read it. I can't remember the timeline. I'd have to go back and look at, you know, my contract date and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and you said that you're donating um, at least all or most of the profits to um, animal welfare, animal shelters. Um, 
and some people have revealed and some people have said um, more in general terms as far as what the advance was. Would you be willing to say either what it was or if it was like five figures, six figures, four figures? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you it was no figures. It was no oh. figures. I mean, they – Ashton Creek Press is a, is a small boutique publishing company. The books that I have read that they have published are outstanding. They are, I mean, the fact that my book <laughs> was accepted by them makes me, um, I don't know, I shake my head sometimes because the books they publish are of the finest quality, but they're a very, very small publishing company. So, you know, that's why they said to me, look, we can't take a book from a proposal. We really need to see the whole manuscript. And then they said to me, look, for a really small publishing company, we can't give you anything up front. But I really, I would have self-published if I had to because the project was that important to me and I wanted to get the information out there knowing that someone else who, that this is what they do versus me who, you know, didn't know anything about book publishing and then went and wrote this book and, um, I said, that's fine. I wasn't going to hold out to look for someone else. Um, mm. I liked them. I liked the books they published. And if this was the way they did it, fine. Mm-hmm. So what did it feel like getting that first box of books in the mail? Amazing. Or I know maybe that are getting to see your book. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I'm, I, I'm still in shock. I don't know if all first time um authors feel that way i'm still in shock that someone embraced the book and um ushered it into being and when i got that first batch um it was it was really remarkable it was awesome so let's actually transition to talking about a little bit about the craft of the book, um, Dogland, A Journey to the Heart of America's Dog Problem. How did you come up with the title? Well, the Dogland part, I have to say, I did not come up with. Ashland Creek Press came up with, and I loved huh. it. Um, my original, they kept, so the... Um, the Dogland part they came up with, A Journey to the Heart of America's Dog Problem, came out of that uh, Media Bistro course and suggestions that I threw out, that um, Ashley kind of threw out. So it was a sort of a combination. So um, Ashton Creek Press kept that second part. My first part actually was called Daisy's Daughter because mm-hmm. – um, that is who Gaitlin is. She is Daisy's daughter, and I kind of like the alliteration. And looking at a lot of books in the genre, they had the name of the dog. So that's kind of what I went with. But I have to say that I like Dogland so much more because the book, while it is about Gaitlin, and I think Dogland really embraces the bigger message of the book and the importance of the book, because it's not just Galen's story. It's the story about shelter dogs in this country. 
um, mm-hmm. and how we're going to stop euthanizing so many healthy, adoptable shelter dogs mm-hmm. and what we need to do and how we can do that. So I'm, I am grateful to them. And that's another reason why I'm glad I didn't self-publish because I had other, other brains working on the book. Mm-hmm. Did you work with an editor specifically at Ashland Creek? Um, Midge first, Midge Raymond. And so she went through it first. And I have to say her hand was far lighter than I thought um, an editor's hand would be. So um, then after that, they give it to, I guess, a proofreader. So I guess she was the editor per se, and then we had a proofreader who looked at it after the editing. But she really, um, she had a light hand. But Mm -hmm. I I did have Ashley first, um, who went, read through every single chapter and critiqued them, and then I went back and reworked them. So it wasn't as though I sent to them something that, no one with a um, an expert eye hadn't seen. It wasn't like my husband read the book, you know. Not that he's <laughs> he's a, a great mm-hmm. grammarian and he's really smart, <laughs> but you know, he's he's not in publishing, so it's not like yeah. he's the one who read it and then I sent it off. She read it and then critiqued it and then I, you know, rewrote and rewrote and sometimes she looked at a chapter again, and then it went to Midge and she had suggestions suggestions that were made and then mm-hmm. um, that was it. Um, your chapter titles have names versus like numbers, chapter one, chapter two. What was the decision um, process like for that choice? I just, from the moment I wrote the book, I gave them titles. I gave my chapters titles. I don't think I ever, I never thought about just one, two, three. I don't know whether that's because mm-hmm. of other books I'd read and they had titles. Um, that's a, and it's a great question because I never really thought about it. I just did it. I just gave them titles. Because mm-hmm. uh, it seems that, I mean, they're titles and some of them, you know, mostly all of them really feel like they could stand by themselves. Um, you know, almost like sort of mini, you know, stories or essays. Uh. You know, I think that probably, interestingly enough, and I didn't realize it till now. I think that might kind of might have come out of my broadcast background. Um, when we mm-hmm. were when I was at CNN, and I was part of this documentary unit, we would do hour-long programs on a particular topic, but the pieces within them stood alone. And I think the narrative about Galen is the the spine that takes you through the story, but each chapter addresses a different issue with regard to mm-hmm. um, shelter overpopulation and euthanasia and what can be done. So maybe in that respect, you've definitely hit on something because yes, each one has has the non Galen story stands alone, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
one of the things that I feel you do very well in this book is um, transitions, moving, you know, from present to past or scene to scene. And it first started to stick out to me in the first chapter, uh, which is called uh, Ready or Not, Here She Comes. And it's on page 17 where you, um, you're you talking about how Galen starts hurting um, the girls, and which is she's uh, nipping at their feet and it becomes um, worse and worse. Um, and your husband is getting frustrated with her and he's afraid that um, she's going to attack one of the girls. And then you just have one sentence, one paragraph sentence. Um, he knew all too well what a dog could do to a young child in a moment of unexpected aggression. Then the next paragraph, it was July 4th, 2003, Lindsay's first, and you go on to tell this story. And there's so many places where you do these really smooth and tight transitions. Uh, what do you attribute that to? I think I'm going to go back to my broadcast background on that, perhaps. Um I think something about rhythm that um, kind of comes out naturally. I don't know if I'm going to make sense here, but I kind of feel like in some of the long-form broadcast stories that I did, you you would be telling a story, but then to fully understand the concept, you would go to something else. And it's very easy or easier to do visually with pictures. So I think maybe that was what did it. Um, I also have to say, I, I read um, Beyond the Beautiful Forevers. Did you read that book? No, um, no I haven't. Oh, God. And, and the author... I'm going to, uh, she's a New Yorker writer, um, hmm. Boo, Catherine Boo, I think. Um, I had read that book, and she does a lot of that, and I hmm. think it just sort of struck me as an interesting style to kind of move um, from past to present to past to present, and it kind of kept the story going. So I know hmm. that I got my idea for the preface from reading her book because she has part of a scene at the preface and then you read the book, you're reading it, and that scene comes back later on, except now it's more fleshed out and you understand it better later on. And I had written several prefaces that just kind of didn't really seem to work. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of hit me that I could do what she did. So... I copied her idea. Well, that's interesting because one of my questions was about the preface. Um, we start where you are at the house where you believe that Galen, um, where her mom came is or where, you know, where she was born, where this litter came from. And I had wrote down what was the, in your mind, what's the purpose of a preface and why did you decide uh, to do it? That's actually one of the questions that I had. So, I think it was to, as with um, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, it grabbed you. It grabbed me as a reader, and I wanted to know more. And I was trying to think, 
okay, how can I hook the reader to want to stay with this book? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and I thought, well, maybe this would do it. Do you think that that's more important uh, in a book where it's sort of, uh, you know, blending research um, and reporting into it? That's not necessarily all, uh, you know, personal story. I think so. I had a number of people say to me, wow, I really liked your book, and I usually don't like nonfiction. And I thought, you know, Mm. there are those nonfiction works that are narratives, and to me, they are as good, if not better, than any fiction book I've ever read. And then there's nonfiction that, that... for some reason comes across drier and more academic. Mm-hmm. And I think I think if you have a bad taste about the, the word nonfiction, maybe you haven't read more of the nonfiction that's out today, which is real story. It's just true story. Mm. How did you do your I mean, when you are on the ground reporting, what's your reporting uh, technique like? Do you take notes? Were you uh, recording these people? Uh, both. It depended who I was with. Um, you know, when I met um, the woman who was Galen's previous owner, I, I didn't, I, it was just me. I didn't even, um, I think I might have had a pad but I did not have any uh, tape recorder or anything like that because I didn't, I I was hoping she would talk to me and I I didn't want to put her off. If I was talking to, you know, um, a shelter director or, you know, someone who I knew was used to talking to journalists, then yes, I used a little tape recorder. Um, I talked to everybody Mm -hmm. on the phone. I mean, because obviously because I was traveling, I had to set this all up, which, was very much like what I did in my broadcast journalism days, which is you do the research by phone, by computer, um, you talk to the people, you decide who you're going to go out there and meet, you set it up, and then you go down and you spend time with them. Mm-hmm. When you, um, so when you met Galen's mom's mom, mom <laughs> mm-hmm. this is, that's, before you had the idea for that's like that's before you act I guess that's the impetus for the idea for the book so that happened before you started writing it uh yeah I I had started it took me a while to find her and when I when I started doing the reporting I I, truthfully I didn't know whether I was going to or not um Hmm. so I didn't know how the book was going to end you know, it could could have ended with, I tried <laughs> to find her. I'll never know <laughs> how she ended up mm-hmm. in that shelter in the first place. All I knew was that she was surrendered. Um, so I was doing all of the other sort of the parallel research about the broader story at the same time as I was trying to find um, her. I did end up meeting her before I was done with all of my other reads. So then it was just a matter. And that's when I said, um, 
the structure of the story did change because at one point I had meeting her earlier in the story, but I felt like it, it then came too early. Why would I bother to finish reading? Right. Mm-hmm. So it ended up at the end, moving it to the end of the, the story because that's that one, to me, that was the one narrative part that really keeps you reading to the end. There are points throughout the book that um, touch on, as you said, broader levels besides just what is going on with um, the dog and cat population. But around, and I tweeted this earlier in the week, around page 52, you get to sort of this um, cultural nugget where the book begins to peel away layers to the problems that um, engage the reader and make them think about cultural differences between the South and the North and um, why there is um, a widespread um, certain belief of the way they treat pets more as property in the South and how it ties back to um, Civil War days and just the South's mentality. And I wasn't expecting it to take that turn. And then about 20 pages later or so, you get uh, this a feeling from the book of a woman on a mission. I think you're on the plane at that point, and then you have an epiphany um, where you're trying to dig for deeper information. Um, did those things come to you organically, and that placement come organically, or is that something that you actually thought about on revision? Well, I knew, I mean, from the start, one of my questions was, why do we have so many southern dogs in New Jersey? Um, which, and then that led to, okay, studies show that there is less spaying and neutering going on in the South, which led to how come? So I kept having to answer these questions. And that was one of those questions that really um, fascinated me the most or really interested me was that the complexity of the South's relationship with dogs. And, you know, I know you can get into a lot of trouble when you start stereotyping regions, but Mm -hmm. it was really interesting to do research and begin to find out there actually were differences in how quickly the North versus the South embraced the idea of animal welfare. And that so much of it had to do with the North being more industrial and being more densely populated and the South being more agrarian and the South euthanizes so many more dogs. So it's easy to say they must not like dogs, right? Or they, they don't care. They're just property to them. But yes, but at the same time, Southerners love dogs. They all have dogs. They, um, you know, there, there are so many Southern artists and writers who incorporate dogs into their work. So that makes it so kind of complex and rich. And so I I did want to find out about that. And I did feel like that needed to be explained early on um, because I felt like I needed to get that out there. Because I think uh, as someone who lives in New Jersey, far too often you hear um, if they would just spay and neuter down there. Like, what's wrong with these people? Mm-hmm. And it's so much more complex than that. I mean, that's what I found that was so fascinating to me was that for every on one hand, there's another hand in this 
um, in this whole broader issue about shelter overpopulation and access to spay neuter and should we have laws or not have laws and um, what's the role of an animal shelter? There's just so much on one hand, but then on the other hand, and it's so much more complex when you get on the ground and you start talking to people. And you did a lot of talking to people and you portrayed them, you know, in this narrative of nonfiction here very, um, you know, vividly between their personality quirks, their, uh, what they look like, or even, you know, in the shelter, if that, what the, the, the description of the shelter or what they had stuff on their desk or somebody was playing or laying on a reclining thing. Um, in terms of your portrayal of the scene and of the people, did you immediately leave your interview and like go transcribe and write down the details that you saw? So you could capture that accurately in the book? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times when I was away, um, you know, in Tennessee and North Carolina and Georgia, I'd be out during the day um, doing my reporting. And at night, I would be sitting in front of my computer trying to put down everything that I remembered and um, doing some transcribing. Because this that was the hardest part for me because I always had the video um that took care of the visual you know when you're writing for broadcast you don't have to describe people because your audience sees the people you don't have to describe um the scene the setting because i can see it so that part was um was very different for me and i, I hadn't done that before hmm. When you talk, to, and in the beginning of your book, there's a disclaimer that says some of the names have been changed, and you know, and then throughout the book, you will sometimes say, "Well, someone who I will call John or this mm-hmm. or that." Did you um, explain to us what was the decision process for who got a fake name and who didn't? And did you tell people at the time, ask, give them an option to, you know, conceal their name or what? Um. Well, I, as sort of part of um, the process um, with the publisher, they asked me to get signed releases from everyone I spoke with. Um, mm. And and so I did, um, unless the person worked for, you know, um, a shelter director. That's a, a, a governmental um, position, and I had to go through, you know, the the county to be able to, speak to that person. So none of those people had their, their names changed. Most people didn't. Um, the, um, the hoarder had her name changed uh, mm-hmm. because the, um, I think that we decided that who she was specifically wasn't as important as what she did, which is you know, which which is representative of the problem of hoarding. So, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't need people knocking on her door, you know. Um, so in that case, uh, a name was changed. Um, the, the name of the, um, the uh, rescuer who ended up being... Um, indicted by the ASPCA 
um, we ended up changing her name. Just mm-hmm. Again, because the issue for us wasn't her so much as how she's representative of a problem within Rescue Today. So that's, that's what ended up happening. So the end of the book contains an afterword, and um, it is a scene with you and your family on the porch during a thunderstorm, and there's kind of this melding or meshing of Griffin and Galen um, that that goes on throughout those few pages. And the end, I thought, was very poetic. Can you tell us a little bit about coming writing the afterword, why you decided to put the afterword? Um, and what 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 influenced your decisions to you know what you just to put what in it? Um, I felt like I needed to sort of close up um, the the story, and I think one of the things for me that I felt like you know kept that I hoped kept people readers turning the page was sort of the narrative of this dog that we, you know, hadn't intended on getting, but um, did. Where we were with her now. Um, And I think as I was writing it, thinking a lot about Griffin, and I do, I think about him a lot because um, one, he was my my first child, Um, but there's so much about them that is similar. So I think it it sort of happened organically. I kind of sat down and I thought to myself, okay, I need to kind of wrap this up in a way that speaks to um, the love we have for our dog. Because that's really what this is about and why to me this whole, you know, these high numbers of euthanasia are so depressing and surprising and because for most of us we really love these animals they're such a part of our lives and I felt like Mm -hmm. I wanted to end on that note because hopefully that speaks to why something needs to be done So uh, we're coming to the end of this. Oh, we have in the picture in the back of the book, you have about the dog, which is such a cute page. And uh, you have Griffin's picture there. And then you have Galen's picture here, um, Loki. Uh, and then you have the cover dog. Uh, little is it so adorable. Um, is there anything that you had to leave out of your, did you find yourself struggling to leave out stuff so that you couldn't include in the book? cut stuff when you were writing it? Yeah. Um, and that's hard. <laughs> you you work so hard. and uh, But again, from my broadcast background, we always left good stuff on the cutting floor. Um, mm-hmm. That's just, you know, there's only so much time, so much space. And sometimes you think something um, will really work. And then you tell the story and you find out that as much as much as you are in love with it, you have to say goodbye. So, mm. so yeah. 
Do you have any plans for future book-length manuscript? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm back in I'm back in mid-career crisis now that I've finished the book, um, and I'm I have some ideas for magazine-length stories, shoots of uh, Dogland, and we'll see where that takes me. Um, and I'm also kind of interested now that I guess I'm going to call myself a writer. I'm interested in exploring um, flash nonfiction and, and more literary writing because I see myself mm-hmm. as a as a journalist and a very literal writer, mm-hmm. not a literary person. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of feel like I'm going to explore that now. So you have been in um, broadcast journalism. Um, news writing, and now you are a book author. Uh, so I'm going to ask you about what you think. What do you think is the superpower that you had as a broadcast journalist that helped you the most as a manuscript writer? Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were going to come at me with that question this way. Like I said, I've listened to you before, so I knew the superhero was coming, but not in this way. I kind of throws off my answer. Um, I think I, I, I think there's something about broadcast writing that has you linking sound bites what what people have to say, which is so important to hear from your characters, and kind of what you do as the writer is you're stitching together these sound bites to tell a story. And I mm-hmm. think that ability to sort of stitch together um, sound bites, or in this case, it would be scenes, whole scenes, um, with information in an internal rhythm that you hear might be that superpower. Mm. And if if you haven't written for broadcasting, that may make no sense whatsoever, but mm. it, it kind of, and, and in a little shout out to you, I listened uh, the other night to um, Lee Gutkin's speech at the um, creative nonfiction um, writers conference, yes. Writers conference that you went to. So, and I think it is what he talks about with creative nonfiction, which is sort of you have these scenes that mm-hmm. goes to information that goes to scene. And I think I did that not because I ever had a class about that, but because that, in a sense, is what telling a broadcast story is all about. It's letting your character speak and then having that information that ties together to get to the next character speaking. So oh. that, I think that all goes together. You know, it's nowadays, when, when I went to grad school, I had to choose, right? Do you want to go newspaper? Do you want to go magazine? Do you want to go broadcast? Mm-hmm. That's out the window, 
right? You could you would never go to a journalism school today and have um, administrators say, well, which track do you want to go on? You have to do it all. And mm-hmm. I think there's probably there's so much more overlap than I think we all realized back in the day when we had to choose our track. I, I, I'm I glad that you chose whatever track you chose then and you <laughs> continue to choose um, what, what you're doing now. I, took, I truly did enjoy a dogland. Like I said, when I read the description in Publishers Weekly, I was like, oh, wow, this sounds cool. i got to read. got to check this out. And, um, you know, it, I'm just amazed and overwhelmed at the amount of research that you did and how you pulled this book together. Um, and really, Thanks. as you said, exercising that power of linking the scenes and then the information and all these kind of disparate stories of shelters through and you know rescuers throughout the country and sometimes you find it the reader sees you making links to people in the stories like that that the showing us that the world of animal rescue and animal care is is smaller you know it's small when you're in that world um and so, you know, as I read through those sections, and there's a couple chapters where you get really, you know, straight into the research, uh, it, it's, it's amazing, you know. So definitely, uh, I encourage uh, everyone to check out Dogland, A Journey to the Heart of America's Dog Problem by Jackie Skoll. Thank you for being on Behind the Pros. Oh, God, Keisha, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And please hug um, Galen for me and Loki. Oh, I will. I will.